This is The Future is Yesterday. I am T. Aaron Sisko. I'm a science fiction Afrofuturist writer, and I never got the hang of audiobooks. And so this podcast is my way to share my work uh, with everyone. I've been reading from my book, Rod String and Nail Cloth, an Afrofuturist mixtape, which is a collection of various works and pieces. And for this episode, I'll be reading the title story, Rod String Nail Cloth. It's an epistolary uh, story, which is um, a story told through letters. So if you think of things like uh, Frankenstein or uh, Go Ask Alice and, and things like that, it's basically the structure of the story is one that's told as if you're reading letters. And so this is Rod String Nail Cloth from Delvin Ruby, sent Wednesday, July 25th, 2091. To Autumn Singer, subject. I hope this finds you. Dear Autumn, I'm writing this now because, quite honestly, I'm not sure when or if I'll be able to get communications in any way, let alone write a message. I've been traveling so far for so long, the distinction between duration and dimension is practically non-existent. My original trajectory has become an Ouroboros. I've lost my point of origination and have no recollection of my target destination. Even now, while hastily scrawling my thoughts, I know that I'm still moving. I'm everywhere and nowhere but hopefully these letters will find their way to you. I don't know what they've told your mother or what she in turn told you, but please know that I alone am responsible. I knew the risk. Hell, I developed the simulation models, but something compelled me to continue. I hope that by sharing my account, you'll understand the truth. Now, please bear with me. I'm still trying to get the hang of this. To, to give you a sense of what I'm going through, yesterday, it was 1989. I was eight years old, getting eaten alive by mosquitoes on a summer evening in the park. I was surrounded by tens of thousands of my fellow citizens, impatiently waiting for the fireworks program to start, and I locked eyes with a pair of bright blue eyes beneath sweaty red bangs. She was sitting two rows away, and the fireworks were drowned out by her mellifluous gaze, but I wanted to say something to her. Then the sky folded and burst, and I woke up at home the morning after my 45th birthday trying to get ready for an assignment. That's my life now. Even though I'm not sure that life is the appropriate term anymore, I have self-awareness and appear to have retained my senses even though what I see and hear and feel doesn't seem like I'm seeing, hearing, or feeling it. It's weird. But I digress. I want to explain everything I remember before the lines of memory become blurred beyond recognition. On that day all those years ago, the assignment drone had ordered me to report to ICT Platform 17. I was confused because, well, as you might remember from your visits, there were only 16 ICT platforms. That should have been my first clue. I confirmed receipt of the assignment, and the assignment drone beeped an approval and transmitted the start time to my chronometer. Since I had a few extra minutes, I figured I could run over to the security gate, find a supervising executive, and clear up the obvious mistake. I zipped up my jumpsuit and exited the barracks. I jumped down the steps and jogged across the training fields, cutting through the officer's pavilion and around to the massive security gate that allowed access to the road leading to the ICT hub at the far end of the station. Just as I was about to enter the hub, Morgan Whitewood came running up behind me, motioning for me to stop. Morgan was the executive coordinator of the Paragon. I'd never seen her in person before and was taken aback by both her imposing height and inviting aura. She said good morning and we exchanged some formal pleasantries. I explained that I had some confusion around my assignment, but before I could go into detail, she held her hand up and cut me off. She already knew that I'd been assigned to Platform 17. That should have been my next clue. 
She assured me that there was no mistake and asked me to accompany her to the center where she could explain what a Platform 17 assignment really meant. Even though it was phrased as a request, it wasn't like I had much of a choice, so of course I agreed. As we walked over toward transport, she opened a bag and handed me a small, warm packet. I tore it open and was shocked to discover that it was a Yoma's egg wrap. I hadn't had one of those since I'd left Planetside years before, and it might not sound like much, but Yoma's still used naturally grown ingredients back then. I loved that even with all the breakthroughs, there weren't any synthes or supplements in their recipes. Now don't get me wrong, sustenance engineers are able to conjure dozens of wonders out of those food labs, growing poultry in, in beakers and making vegetables out of regenerated particles, transforming all sorts of pastries into pills and capsules, but let me tell you, no matter how incredible the advancements are, no matter how nutritious the end result winds up being, they just can't stick their foot in it like Shayla and the crew at Yoma's. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. Morgan's transport was right in the middle of a no parking zone, but nobody would have dared sight it. One look at that transport made it clear the owner had earned the right to be a scofflaw. I can still see it clearly in my mind. Most transports are aesthetically pleasing, with their minimalist lines and sleek silhouettes, but this was a magnificent blend of engineering and design. It didn't sit by the curb so much as it lounged on the street, basking in the glow of the filtered artificial sunlight. Its curved chassis was streamlined and svelte, resting upon the four large centerless wheels in the back, flowing down at a strikingly beautiful angle to the two smaller wheels in the front, giving it a sleek and speedy appearance even when motionless. I didn't get many opportunities to drive often, but thoroughly enjoyed myself when I did. I slid into the plush cushioning of the seat. Pressing the brass-lined ignition button, I let my fingers linger on the hand-carved Sapelli wood appointments of the dash. Morgan explained that the entire central thoroughfare had been cleared for our travel, so I could open it up and really punch it. I leaned forward and tapped the control buttons on the dash, setting the velocimeter to maximum. As we sped down the massive tube that connected the orbiting stations known as the thoroughfare, I forced myself to concentrate on the road ahead, trying to ignore the fact that the second most powerful person on the planet was just 22 inches away, reclining back in the passenger seat. I remember a few minutes into the drive adjusting the rearview mirror and catching a glimpse of my reflection. Even beneath the perpetual cloud of exhaustion weighing down my features, I still tried to keep up a serious and professional appearance, but it was getting harder and harder every year. Just after you were born, I was an enthusiastic new hire, recruited just a few years after grad school to begin training as a paragon. It wasn't my first choice, but I figured I could use the experience and contacts to achieve my ultimate goal of acquiring a temporal relocation permit. My dream then was to work in the Ecological Restoration Department, and I figured working for the Alpus Network would be mutually beneficial. I mean, Lavelle Douglas was a living legend, and the company was named after the Greek goddess of hope. I mean, talk about a positive sign, right? Besides, I figured this would be a temporary move, just a strategic investment spend a few years training with the top minds in the most innovative organization in the history of mankind and then leverage that experience into a top-tier position doing what I really wanted to do before returning planetside to be closer to you and your mom. But I tell you, nothing tempers and alters aspirations as dramatically as time in the field. I'm starting to feel that tingling sensation beneath my skin, which is really the most surreal experience because I don't have skin anymore. But still, when the barbed iron start tearing at these pores, I, I know soon I'm going to be somewhere else. So I'll finish the story as soon as I can. Love, Del. From Delvin Ruby. Sent Friday, July 27, 2091. To Autumn Singer. Subject, more details. Hi, Autumn. Last night, it was 1903. I was in a cold office in a small country town listening to a sweaty woman in chains beg for her life. 
A few hours before daybreak, she claimed she'd heard shattering glass and anguished screams. She grabbed her father's rifle and ran next door to investigate. She found her neighbor's husband swinging from a tree in the front yard and her neighbor kneeling in front of the burning house with three of her four children. I was about to speak when the air turned to syrup and the sweaty woman's face shattered like antique glass. I felt a tingle, then imploded and shrank until I was nothing more than a mucilaginous blob melting in the dark. But I'm here now and I want to make sure I get through the story before the tingles return and I move again. So like I said earlier, I was driving with Morgan, listening to the calming whir of the wheels spinning against the hexagonal sails of the thoroughfare. The soothing vibrations of the transport had caused Morgan to doze off, so when we reached the perimeter gates that surrounded the center, I had to lean over to gently nudge her awake. In case you've never been, the center is a majestic wonder of architectural ingenuity. To say that LaBelle Douglas had an eye for design would be a gross understatement. Before it was repurposed, it was the headquarters of Homeomagnetics, the multinational company founded by LaBelle Douglas, way back before the majority of the folks in the Alpus network had even been born. The gates were more for aesthetic than security and were a testament to Lavelle's predilection for the number 10. The gate was comprised of 10-foot-high columns that were each 10 inches in diameter and were set 10 inches apart, curving outward at a 10-degree arc. Each column was wrapped in exquisitely carved marble, and on the sides of each were 10 rows of 10 nozzles that expelled and received the shimmering pale green fluid between them. A 3.9-inch cube was embedded in the top of each column, generating a constant magnetoelectric charge to the fluid, rendering the gates both a wonder to behold and entirely impossible to breach. The most welcoming place on the planet was also completely impenetrable. The center was aptly named. As cliche as it sounded, this was the heart and soul of humanity. In the final days of what would later become known as the last January, it was a terrestrial arc, providing the only refuge for a species three steps past the brink. Back then, well, and maybe still now, but for sure back then, Outside the confines of the network, miles below on the surface, the air was toxic, the water was lethal, the sand and soil were unsuitable for both hardy organic crops as well as the genetically modified lab augmented seeds that were supposed to be able to take root anywhere. There was still flora and fauna of sorts outside the center, but none of it was for splendor, and only those with the most hardened mutations have been able to adapt to the unrelentingly hostile extra-atmospheric environment. See, as I was growing up, Ongoing conflict overseas had expanded into full-out welfare. There was famine abroad, hate crimes at home, a rash of pandemics leaving millions infected, and the unwillingness of the world's governments to enact effective measures to combat climate change led to accelerated evolution in a variety of mosquito species, which in turn yielded mutations in the dengue, Marburg, Zika, and Tularemia viruses, as well as in the nematodes that cause Pleuriasis and, and the plasmodium parasites that caused malaria. It was no matter how you tried to spin it, the man-made apocalypse was absolute, irreversible, and worst of all, it was still in progress. The network served as literal shelter from the ecological and viral storms. Now, while it'd be extremely challenging for you to try to find someone to deny the benefit of the center now, Lavelle Douglas's tireless efforts to establish a refuge for humanity was an uphill battle from the moment he presented the center as a viable solution. But he got it done. And everyone you know or will ever meet has him to thank. But back to my story. We pulled up to the main gateway and Morgan handed me her ID fob. I held the fob against the oval sensor and an opening emerged in the liquid wall, conforming perfectly to the shape of the transport. The second the back of the transport cleared the gate, the opening closed behind us. Morgan pointed to a small area a few feet to the right where a dozen personnel stood waiting and told me to pull over. That staff? That was the archive. 
the personal security and groundskeepers of the center. They were just as impressive as the structure they've been sworn to protect. They were all in peak physical condition, enhanced by various biotechnical augmentations, and from what I've seen, the archai you might be familiar with now haven't changed much. They were still dressed in matching agaba, a garment that was commonly worn by Europe men. It had a, a sort of billowy outer garment and an undershirt called an awotale and loose-fitting trousers known as Sokoto, if not for their ID lanyards and incapacitation pistols. You know, the archai could have passed for a crew of unnecessarily muscular yoga practitioners. Now, six of these archives surrounded the vehicle as Morgan and I exited the transport. Withdrawing security monitoring instruments, they proceeded to scan every inch of the car. Then they scanned us. The beams of bright blue light emanating from their contact lenses, it was so bright it made me squint. Now, once the, we were cleared, a statuesque woman with high cheekbones, thick silver hair, and a caramel complexion stepped forward with a polite smile. She introduced herself as Zariah Melton, the Arshan of the Archive. She told us that Mr. Douglas had requested that we be escorted through the center. Morgan asked if a full detail was really necessary, and Zariah explained that it was a mandatory courtesy. Then the Archive encircled us, and we headed off into the main building. I'd never been that deep into the center before and had a hard time staying calm. I mean, every ounce of me wanted to squeal, but I managed to restrict my excitement. After crossing through an enormous and gorgeously decorated atrium, we reached a pair of opaque doors that opened as we approached. Stepping through, we were immediately shrouded in darkness. If not from the blue lights emanating from the contact lessons of the Archai, it would have been impossible to find our way through. The Archai led us through the darkness to another set of opaque doors that led to an empty room. The walls, floor, and ceiling were made of a material that looked like polished bronze, and the joints were where they met were seamless, creating a disorienting effect. The only item in the room was a six-foot black and gold tube that stood in the center like a monolith. Soraya motioned for Morgan and I to wait here, and the archive detail parted, allowing Soraya to pass before following her out through the doors. I was excited and intrigued. Whatever I was about to do was definitely going to be unique and possibly groundbreaking, and my enthusiasm was tempered with a healthy dose of apprehension, but all those fears melted away when LaBelle Douglas himself appeared in the doorway, flanked by another group of archive. I know you've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of broadcasts and images of Liddell Douglas, but let me tell you, nothing compared to the real thing. He looked just as dapper and impressive in person. I don't know how I kept my composure. Ah, damn it. I have to cut this transmission short. I feel the tingles flaring up again. They're pretty intense now. But hopefully... That just means I'll be moving on quickly and we'll be able to return even faster. I hadn't intended for this to be like a, a series of letters, but it's hard to plan in a, a transitive, non-corporeal state. I'll, I'll write again as soon as possible. Regards, Delvin. From Delvin Ruby. Sent Thursday, February 4th, 2106. To Autumn Singer. Subject, more details. My dearest Autumn, uh, my apologies for such a huge gap between messages. I, I thought I'd be able to make it back years ago, but this morning was amazing. I was just getting back to being me, all set up and ready to write you. And, and when I looked down, I, I found myself in, in 2792, passing by Upsilon Andromeda in orbit around the extrasolar planet Madridi. Uh, I was hopelessly lost, as I'd never been out that far before, both in terms of distance and years. But to my horror, I realized I was not alone. Something was standing atop a large, pulsating, inorganic vessel. The figure was seven feet tall, semi-corporeal, and humanoid. It wore no clothing, but possessed no possible discernible features to indicate nudity. The bright lights of the vessel 
softly reflected on the entity's lucent curvature. The being's skin was intoxicatingly lustrous, as though a sheet of blue chrome was wrapped around it. The head was, uh, was almond-shaped and lightly porous, like a reptilian egg. Three blood-red streaks ran from the top of its head down the left side of the creature's body. It was aware of my presence, but seemed to sense that I was neither food nor foe, so it didn't give me any more than a passing glance. And then I, I found myself heading towards Samj, and, and just as I reached the outer limits of the atmosphere, I blinked. Uh, and that started the hell out of me, because until that point, I, I had completely forgotten how to do that. But in the tenth of a second that it took my eyes to close, the tingles returned, and, and by the time my blink was completed, it, it was 1995, on a rainy day in the last smile of summer, and I was facing someone who stood on tiptoe with her eyes closed, lifting her delicate chin up and to the left, drawing closer to the uneven patches of barely visible fuzz on my chin, which I was trying to pass off as a goatee. Her satiny black hair spilled casually down her neck, gracefully swaying across the contours of the valley between her shoulders. The chipped and chewed polish of her fingers crept out from cavern sleeves, one hand deftly holding the first of many filterless cigarettes that she enjoyed with an adorable smirk. Her other palm rested firmly against my cheek, guiding my chin. With perspicacious concentration, I avoided allowing my mind to dwell on the thoughts of that friction, that hip beneath the palm, the gentle hypnotic swaying, the millimeters of denim over cotton, over the flash of flesh beneath the bottom of her shirt, the inches of skin peeking above the lip of her jeans. Concentrating hard, I was able to summon the tingles voluntarily. Now, it, it took some practice, but in the span of an hour, well, well, an hour for me, at least, um, but based on the calendar in front of me now, I can see it's been nearly 14 years for you, but I, I was able to summon the tingles and move myself. I, I still can't control the destination points or, or time frame scenarios that I land in, but at least now I can move at will. Uh, I'm not sure if I'll ever have full control of the tingles, so I'm just going to cut to the important parts, okay? Uh, in case you've forgotten, which, considering it's been a decade and a half, it's totally understandable, or, or deleted and lost my previous messages, let me recap, okay? Um, I've been given an assignment for a platform that didn't exist. And Morgan Whiteman, she showed up and took me to the center, and we were escorted by the Arshan of the Archai to a strange empty room deep within the heart of the center, and there was nothing there except, uh, well, Morgan, myself, and this large gold and black tube, and then Lavelle Douglas showed up. Okay, um, so Lavelle gave Morgan and I a quick refresher on the bounds of theoretical proposition of the casual loop. In other words, uh, in a retrocausality event caused during temporal displacement, a sequence of events causes well, another event, which in turn triggers the initial preceding event. Um, sort of like uh, killing an ancestor before you're born. Uh, anyway, solving the issue was how he had perfected temporal displacement, and it was the reason for the formation of the Paragon. So... Uh, I suppose before I go on, I should explain how the Paragon do our work. We use, or used, because I'm not certain as to whether you still have a Paragon anymore, but when I was a Paragon, we used Interstellar Interdimensional Consciousness Transfer, or ICT. So with ICT, your cerebrum is digitized, and a model of your, you know, Persephalon or forebrain, it's loaded into an extraversion launch machine, which is sent uh, from the geosynchronous station to a reflector satellite, and then depending on the destination, it's either transmitted into deep space for exploration or it's converted to a tachyonic state and transmitted to a receptor somewhere along the space-time continuum. But, okay, no matter the assignment, we adhered to the three main points of Paramount Injunction, which were uphold the integrity of the continuum, neutralize any and all threats to the integrity of the continuum, and maintain extreme discretion when interacting with any and all elements of the continuum, whether they're biological or inanimate. Now, all that's pretty standard and could likely be found within a few minutes on a search engine, but, okay, 
what I'm about to tell you, I'm sure nobody else knows. Now, don't worry. I'll put in a nine-factor bio-authentication lock on this transmission, so you won't have to worry about anyone snooping around your inbox. But when Lavelle perfected temporal displacement and Morgan got the Paragon up and running, the original intent was to go back and change the calamitous trajectory of our species. But then, as you probably already figured out, they were restricted by the boundaries of the theoretical proposition in the casual loop. The subsequent impact wasn't possible to determine, but the plague of apocalyptic conditions we suffered through the early decades were almost certainly due to our own meddling in the continuum. So Lavelle and Morgan abandoned the original plan, and then the Paragon shifted focus to maintenance. Things were bad, but the thinking was, well, maybe we could at least ensure they wouldn't get too much worse. And that's where Platform 17 came in. My assignment seemed pretty straightforward. The goal was to ignite the formation of a retrocausality event, not within the continuum, but of the continuum itself. In order for humanity to survive, we needed to compromise the continuum. We needed to compromise the continuum on an unprecedented scale. Instead of maintaining harmonious alignment and neutralizing potential threats, my objective was to become the biggest threat in the history of existence. Now, I was to complete my mission using the golden black capsule in the center of the room. This was Platform 17. It was a prototype ICT machine. See, instead of digitizing a cerebrum to send back, uh, Platform 17 doesn't digitize anything. It converts matter, or in this case, an entire living person. It converts it into a conscious energy. In other words, a digital copy of my forebrain wouldn't be going uh, temporarily displaced through the continuum, but rather I would be actually traveling back in time all the way to the beginning of time itself. But here's the thing. Nobody knows what's there. Since the inception of the Paragon, we've traveled all over the continuum, but again, in order to maintain the integrity of the continuum, we've never gone back further than half century. I was sent back 14 billion years. I don't know if my mission was completed or if I still exist, but the line between consciousness, reality, and perception dissipated the moment I stepped into Platform 17 and engaged that navigation system. Oh, the tingles are coming on strong and I can't hold them off. I don't know if any of these are reaching you, but if I'm able to send another, I will. Please remember me. Del. From Delvin Ruby, sent Monday, September 6, 2117, to Autumn Singer. Subject, please. It's 370 BC. I'm here because I still haven't learned how to politely decline invitations from old men with authoritative titles. I sip cheap wine and stare at a collection of young sculptures, paintings. Uh, the work displayed indicates artists with passion, but the patrons have more pretension than respect for the talent. A hand taps my shoulder and I see that it's 1996, a face I recognize. I'd seen her around school on many occasions. She was a chain-smoking, profanity-spewing goddess among us mortals. Her pleated black miniskirt seemed to always be there, and she she was slightly knock-kneed, although uh, the fishnets tucked over tights, tucked into socks, shoved into thick-soled fashionable boots, completely distracted from any superfluous notions of physical imperfection. Coupled with the same light brown second-hand military coat, she was perfection personified, the archetypical example of uniform non-conformity that was all the rage back in those days she opens her mouth and it's it's 14.1 billion bc i'm drifting at the crest of a wave of blackness so devoid of light it's blinding i'm not alone but i can't see or hear or access any sensory information i'm only aware of my being because i can still think but my thoughts aren't my own i'm not afraid 
I don't feel any emotion at all, actually. Whatever is with me is beyond the reaches of comprehensions. I'm, I'm drawn to it because I am from it. It comforts me and it pushes me. Here it's just 21.17 and the tingles are pervasive and never ending. I, I know that this is the last transmission I'll ever be able to compose. The best I can do is, is give you the equation to give you a sense of where to start that uh, T1 equals T minus VX over C squared to the square of one minus V2 over C squared to the X1, X minus VT1 minus V2 over C squared because Y1 equals Y with Z1 equals Z. Please find me. Please find me. Please find me. Please. Dahl. From Mailer Damon, Singer Autumn, sent Wednesday, January 25th. 2091 to Ruby, comma, Delvin. Subject, free. Hope this finds you. Delivery has failed. Your message was not delivered due to the following reasons. Transmission admin for the recipient organization has created a transmit rule restriction as the content and subject matter conveyed in the body or attachment material of your message is in violation of the Interplanetary Interstellar Transtemporal Intercontinuum Communications Regulatory Edict 6655322. If you feel this message to be in error, please contact the Office of the Paragon Messaging Administration for removal of the rule restriction. So that was the title story, Rod String Nail Cloth from my book, Rod String Nail Cloth and Afrofutures Mixtape. I, I really, I've always liked epistolary tales. I always wanted to try my hand at one. And again, this was, that was the first story that I wrote that was gonna become part of the Afrofutures Mixtape. Um, it's a lot of fun to write this idea of like what if travel wasn't physical travel like i love sci-fi and the idea of like you know like i'm a huge trekkie so getting into a, a starfleet ship and warping across the galaxy i'm also a huge whovian so the idea of jumping in the tardis and going anywhere across space and time and i like the idea of combining those two but removing the vehicle aspect and what would that be like um where you're not traveling per se but your consciousness is and then what if you as a, a being become that consciousness and that's what's traveling but then there's no control over it you're lost in time but also lost just period like in the in the ultimate sense um so i wanted to play with that and i love the idea of doing the epistolary tale through kind of like not not really email but yeah like an email or electronic communications style um where someone doesn't know what's happening to them, but they're just trying to draft and, and catch what they can piece together. So there's just some record out there. Because I think that as you get older, um, I don't know. I think that legacy plays into a lot of people's minds. We, we think a lot about we think a lot about what we do while we're here, sure. But I think there's a lot of focus on what we're, we're going to leave behind, what our legacy will be, the mark we'll have. Which is nice, because usually, I think, and this might be anecdotal, but a lot of folks, especially in, in science fiction, they talk about time travel being dangerous because of the impact that it might have if, we, if we're from the future. Going back in time, you know, everyone's aware of like the butterfly effect. You don't want to mess with anything because it's going to have a big impact on, on uh, messing with the past impacts the future. And again, there's kind of a popular meme, but like it's weird that there's this disconnect because then you get a lot of apathy and inaction from folks in our present time, not realizing that we are in the past of the future to come. Now is the time to make those big ripples. Um, 
and so I like the idea of again this super technology where that that's their kind of their driving force that is their creed is that we make the ripples and the continuum because we're trying to fix all the things wrong and then of course because it's got to be a story things things have to go wrong for the be a, a climax anyway um yeah we're, we're burning through rod string nail cloth uh there's uh, the next episode is actually the last story in uh rod string nail cloth which is they burn so easily uh and then after that i think we're gonna we'll move on to another one of my books but thank you for listening this is the future is yesterday